this idea that the maternal instinct, as it sounds like your father-in-law might say, is innate and automatic and uniquely female, that is a myth. It's just not true. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Chelsea Conaboy. Chelsea is a journalist who specializes in personal and public health. She was part of the Boston Globe's Pulitzer Prize-winning team for coverage of the Boston Marathon bombing, and more recently has worked as a magazine writer with bylines at Mother Jones, Political, The Week, and the Boston Globe magazine, among others. She lives in Maine with her husband, their two young sons, and as she puts it, her own changing maternal brain. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Chelsea is also the author of an amazing new book, Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. Reading Chelsea's work has really challenged and reset a lot of my own understanding about how we think and talk about, quote, mommy brains. And she makes the case really well for why we have to expand our understanding of parenting beyond cisgender women to be more inclusive, both because it's the best thing for our kids and our families and because it's actually quite pivotal to how humans evolved. So I think a lot of this conversation, particularly Chelsea's explanations of the neuroscience and the understanding of the plasticity of our own brains, is stuff that it was brand new to me. It's going to be new to a lot of you. And I think it's really affirming and empowering to understand. So here's Chelsea, but first a quick break. Okay, it's time to read another of your five-star reviews. Thank you to everyone who is putting these in Apple Podcasts. They really help folks find the podcast. All you have to do is scroll down till you see the stars, tap, and you can write a little note. Also, in addition to being helpful for the podcast, they make me feel good. So thank you for that ego boost. This one is from Mara Sulu. They write, this podcast and its companion newsletter have been so helpful for me. I've spent my life dieting and believing that my body was unacceptable because it wasn't perfectly thin. Virginia has helped open my eyes to the possibility that perhaps there's nothing wrong with me and that there never was. It has been a radical shift and I am grateful. Thank you so much, Marasulu. I am grateful for you. There is nothing wrong with you and there never was. Another way I think this conversation with Chelsea is really helpful because it helps us understand so often our brains and bodies are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So if you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on your podcast player. If you want even more burnt toast, become a newsletter subscriber. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get so many great perks, including the subscriber-only bonus episodes, all my reported essays, full access to my monthly Ask Virginia column, all delivered directly to your email. And you become a part of our amazing burnt toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. So just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. Whatever you do, thanks so much for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Chelsea. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. I'm a longtime newspaper journalist. I was a reporter and editor for a long time. And for the past few years, I've been a freelancer writing a lot about public health in its broadest definition and health policy. And I'm a mom of two kids, ages five and seven. 
And we are here to talk about your new book, Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. I should, full disclosure, note that Chelsea and I share a publisher and an editor, so we were set up as author friends in that way, but I would be asking you to be on the podcast regardless because the book is fantastic and just exactly the kind of conversation we need to be having and that I love having here. So the title is Mother Brain, but you're very clear from the get-go that you take a more inclusive definition of that concept. So talk a little bit about who you're speaking to in this book and also how gender and biology impact this idea of the, quote, mother brain. I'm glad we're starting here. It's really important. A parent is anyone who commits their time and energy to caring for children. And there are different mechanisms for how we get to a parental brain, depending on whether we're a gestational parent or not. But we arrive at very similar places regardless. And the one really key point that I make over and over in this book is that it's experience that matters most, time and attention are the things that shape the brain. And I really wanted to get at how not only have we created such an incomplete understanding of what mommy brain is as something that undermines women, but we've also really oversimplified the idea of who gets to do this, you know, whose biology determines them to be really good caregivers. And the answer is everyone. Everyone who commits themselves to this work is changed by it at a neurobiological level. And we think of that as a modern invention that now men take an active role in caregiving and non-binary trans folks can be parents. And we think of this as like a new thing. But I loved how you talked in the book about how this has actually always been happening. And it's like a very core thing that distinguishes humans from other species, right? That we've always had this idea that everyone can be a caregiver. It's really ancient and it predates humans also in the sense that the circuitry for caregiving is this like fundamental evolutionary lever that shapes like social structures of species across time. So it's why we have such a diversity of parenting structures across animals and of fathering. But in humans, it became really important in the way that it wasn't for other primates before us because human mothers started having babies closer together Mm -hmm. and human babies couldn't rely only on their mothers to take care of them. And so there were other adults that stepped in and kind of allowed the species to flourish the way it did and like created the hypersociality of the human brain. And that is rooted in the idea that Mothers couldn't do it all, that other adults had to help. And not necessarily just female adults, but like we can think more comprehensively about gender with this too, right? I mean, it was actually thought that it was probably grandmothers who were like the original helpers, Mm -hmm. that grandmothers who lived, you know, a little bit past their reproductive years started helping and allowed their daughters to have more kids more quickly. But the idea is also that they passed on sort of their willingness to engage and like be captured by their babies and that that became a human trait, that it like enabled what is referred to as alloparenting or other parenting, that it's not just mothers, it's really anyone can do it. Fascinating. And so such an important part of the conversation when we talk about 
how motherhood is portrayed now is this like solo operation, self-sacrifice, like all consuming. It was never meant to be that. Yeah, (laughs) man. Man. All right. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about some of the sort of popular culture misinterpretations. I mean, we hear about terms like mommy brain, as you said, that serves to undermine women. We also talk a lot about maternal instincts. Mm. Like I was thinking, reading your book, I'm planning to give it to my father-in-law because an anecdote he loves to tell often when talking about parenting is how his wife would always wake up for the crying babies and he would sleep through it. And he always framed this to me as like, it's just the mother's instinct. You'll hear the baby cry before your husband will. And, you know, that's just the mother's instinct to just be tuned into the baby that way. So can you debunk that for me, please? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's possible that she did hear it more than he did because she had thousands of nights of practice, you know, getting up and doing it. I mean, that became the model in her mind. Sometimes she probably woke up before the baby even cried because she knew that they were going to be hungry soon because she had the practice. Experience matters. (laughs) So it became part of how her parental brain worked. Also, maybe because she couldn't rely on her husband to get up too. Mm -hmm. So it was up to her. Mm -hmm. I mean, maternal instincts are a really tricky thing to talk about in some ways. It's kind of like a comforting idea for some people to feel like, you know, we have this maternal intuition that will get us through the hard stuff. The issue that I have with it is kind of how we arrive at this idea that the maternal instinct, as it sounds like your father-in-law might say, is innate and automatic and uniquely female. Mm-hmm. That is a myth. Mm-hmm. It's just not true. The parental brain is something that takes time to develop. It's not automatic. It's something that grows in us and it can be really grueling, you know, especially at the beginning. And it keeps growing and changing as we grow and change. And it's a major transformation. And it's one that needs time and support and attention to go well. And it's one that comes with real risks, too. Mm -hmm. The idea of maternal instinct kind of ignores all of that. And it was written into science by men who held fast to these religious beliefs around womanhood and who also had a stated interest in compelling women, especially white, well-off women, to have more babies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, there were feminists at that time in the early part of the 20th century who were saying, you know, this is a ruse. We know that what you're trying to do here is to make it look easy and it's not easy. One of the things I took away from your book is just like, it's so comforting to realize that experience that I think is quite common of expecting to have the baby arrive and you just immediately know what to do and then realizing like you have no fucking clue (laughs) what to do. (laughs) And it's so hard. You know, that transition that a lot of us go through, you can end up feeling like it's something you did wrong and that it's your fault for not mm-hmm. tapping into this more immediate Absolutely. sense yep. of maternal wisdom or whatever. What's wrong with me? I mean, that's why I wrote this book. <laughs> that's how I felt when my son was born in 2015. I was just completely blindsided by it, and especially by the intensity of the worry I felt for him and the complete lack of certainty that I knew what to do or that I could even figure it out. Mm-hmm. And 
kind of how consuming that feeling was and my complete lack of words to describe it. I mean, I went looking for them and really like went down the rabbit hole of the brain research and found, you know, a completely different story than the one I feel like I had been fed. I want to circle back to what you were just talking about with male scientists kind of creating this narrative because I was fascinated by your reporting on the history of scientific research on motherhood and on parenting advice. I think of parenting content as this, again, another modern invention, but clearly not. Men have been telling women how to parent for centuries and yet doing so little of the actual parenting work. So how do you make sense of that and how has it done a disservice to all parents? I think this has a lot to do with the rise of the expert. In 1877, Charles Darwin published a journal about his own son's development, and that kind of launched the field of child development. And, you know, following his example, lots of women started forming child study societies, documenting their own children's growth and sharing what they learned. And very soon after that, they were basically told that they couldn't be trusted for this work, that their own maternal instincts made it impossible for them to be objective observers. And Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, and at the same time, medicine and science was really walled off to women. So instead, we got this long string of men publishing books about child rearing. Some were better than others. Some were like absurd. (laughs) My favorite is John Watson in, I think, 1928, telling women to put their kids in a hole in the backyard from the time they were born. And to avoid kissing them at all costs. I think I wrote holy fuck in the margins on that part. Like, I mean, wait, like a whole, like it was like a sand pit. They, he was like, put yeah, your baby in a sand pit. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I mean, that book sold tens of thousands of copies what? in its first months. And it really influenced parenting for about a decade. It's like really laughable. But then sometimes I think like, well, some of the parenting advice we get today is like, no less laughable. You know, it's just the landscape is different now. Things can be like critiqued in real time. There's more diversity of ideas. You know, there are more women and non-binary parents giving the advice, but we still definitely have this sense that has been there all along, which is good mothers produce good children. Mm -hmm. And that if we just Google enough, we'll find the answers and That's almost never true. Mm -hmm. And I think the disservice that this causes is is really the anxiety that it creates in us all and the judgment and also how it can like deflect from what we really need and also like what our kids need, which is like connection. They need, you know, our time and attention and also a community of adults around them who can connect with them as well. It makes it this project of personal responsibility. I mean, there's a great parallel with diet culture here, which is always where my brain goes. It's ignoring the fact that you can be a really, quote, good mother, but if you can't afford rent or you don't have childcare, you know, these larger structural issues that we just don't have to deal with if we're too busy telling parents, like, the one thing you have to do to have a healthy baby is co-sleep or put your child in a dirt hole or whatever the trend. I mean, I I was thinking about it too. And I was like, this dirt hole thing could totally become some new like Instagram parenting trend, like free range. (laughs) It has like sort of gentle parenting vibes of like, you know, and just put up a Montessori gate or, you know, floor bed around it. Child-led sandpit exploration. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> oh my God. That's the hashtag. That's great. I do want to talk a bit more about the brain chemistry piece of it, because that's obviously a big focus of the book, how parenting changes our brain and these really important and really necessary, like for the good of society ways. That was very interesting. Talk a little bit about what happens sort of on a fundamental level to our brains and what about these brain changes surprised you the most? So the changes to the parental brain are fundamentally adaptive. I think that's an important place to start because it's so counter to the narrative we often talk about with mothers and brains. And, you know, they occur because this new role is just dramatically different than what we've, at least the vast majority of us, have been in before. We become wholly responsible for the survival of a tiny nonverbal human who is vulnerable and who doesn't have the brain development yet to regulate themselves and their own physiology. And so at first, the parental brain changes in ways to make us really hyper-responsive. We talk a lot about the dramatic shifts in hormones that happen during pregnancy and what they mean for our bodies and childbirth. But that talk typically ends at, you know, baby blues in the sense that for most people, things sort of settle out after a few weeks, when in reality, this flood of hormones primes the brain for this period of plasticity or really like malleability so that babies who are like these really powerful stimuli can kind of go to work and shape them to meet their own needs. And what happens is brain regions that are related to motivation and vigilance and how we make meaning of the world around us become really active. They increase in, in both activity and in connectivity. And at least in that early postpartum period, that can feel really intense and also deliberately colored by worry. And we're driven to pay attention to our babies, to respond quickly to their needs, and to like try and try again to meet them. And knowing that like we're going to make mistakes in that and we're going to have to respond really quickly. So that's like hyper responsiveness. And then over time, it's thought that things shift to this more regulated state that parents fine tune their ability to recognize their child's cues and to predict what they need. And so brain regions involved in self-regulation and social processing and what's called theory of mind or how we read and respond to other people, those also change both in function and in structure. And, you know, one researcher described it to me as if like the neural networks that support our ability to understand ourselves and our own needs in a social context kind of like get extended to also now include our children. Mm. And it's like our extension of ourselves at a neural level. That's fascinating because you do have sort of a felt experience of getting better at parenting. I mean, that new things happen. It gets hard again, different ages. But I do think a lot of us have an experience of like confidence increasing and feeling more yes. qualified to make these calls. So it's just fascinating to understand that that actually is your brain has literally done that work, that you're evolving into this role. And there's some research that looks at second or subsequent pregnancies and everyone's experiences are different. I know people have had harder second pregnancies in terms of like their mental state, but that there's some research that indicates that like you become kind of less hyper reactive in terms of your neural activity because you've like got that infrastructure mm. in place that like you kind of know how to do the prediction piece 
better. Mm. So it's less intense. That is so interesting. And but again, though, I just want to reiterate that you're saying most of this is coming from the experience of caretaking, not the biological process of pregnancy, right? Well, okay, so let's clarify that. So the vast majority of research in this area is still in gestational cisgender mothers. But what there is in fathers in particular and some other non-gestational parents, foster mothers and adoptive mothers, shows that there is similar neuro, like hormonal shifts that occur when you become a parent, even if you're not a birthing parent, and that that is thought to also prime the brain for this hyper-responsiveness. And there is a global circuitry that develops over time with parenting. It's a little bit different, but it's more similar than not. Mm -hmm. And it is remarkably really tied to how much time you spend with your baby. Interesting. So, There's these fascinating studies that look at heterosexual male-female couples and then gay fathers and half of whom are biologically related to their children. And it looks at their brains over time and basically found that for primary caregiving fathers, the circuitry was very similar to the mothers who were in the study considered primary caregivers also. And in certain measures of connectivity, like it was more profound the more time they actually logged with their children. I appreciate that clarification. Yeah, and this is not to downplay the profound changes that one does experience if you're a birthing parent, obviously. Yeah, it's kind of like a jump start, yeah. that intensity. But yeah, I mean, it's not the only way. Right. There are multiple paths. We can take a more inclusive approach to it. The other thought I just kept having as I was reading your book was how refreshing it was to read this analysis of parenting and as a motherhood as a brain-based activity, as something that we bring experience and skills and learning to, because so often the cultural conversation, it's the dismissal of the mommy brain that we talked about. But then also it's like all about mother's bodies, right? Like it's how your body changes. Will you get your body back? The shame of having a mom body. And that's another way we reduce, we both narrow who can qualify as a parent. And we reduce the experience and the work that's going into it because we're making it all this sort of embodied thing. What do you think we gain when we change the focus to talking about parenting in terms of brains? I mean, most importantly, I think what we gain is a chance to really prepare for what this life stage means for us. It would have made a huge difference to me if I had understood this neurobiological process before I was kind of in crisis mode, Mm -hmm. you know, as a new parent. And I think the science can really help us to talk to expectant parents about what they need and also put our own individual experiences into context. There's a really interesting parallel here with the teenage brain research. And, you know, we've really come to understand much more in recent years about what happens in our teenage years and to see it as a time that like the brain requires extra support. That science has been shaping policies around like school start times, delaying start times for teenagers. That comes from brain research and the science on how much sleep the brain needs to really go through the changes that people are experiencing then. And it's changed policies around approaches to discipline. It's changed public health messaging around substance use and other like risky behaviors. And it's also been used in schools to help teenagers to understand themselves and their own mental health and what they're experiencing. And 
I feel like the parental brain science can be sort of like that too, if we use it the right way. Mm -hmm. Like it should affect the policies that we make or, you know, fail to make is often the case right right now around what young families need. And it should also change how we talk about ourselves and how we prepare people to make this transition to parenthood. And I think the other point I'd make is talking about the parental brain in a broader way should give us like more an appreciation for ourselves. I think one of the most surprising pieces of the parental brain science is the stuff that's looking at how long lasting these changes are. And there are these fascinating studies that are taking big data banks of brain imaging, like thousands of people, and comparing the brains of parents and non-parents in older age. So people who are in like their 50s, 60s, 70s and older. And what they're finding is that parents' brains are what they call younger looking, Mm. like they've had fewer effects of aging. And, you know, one group of researchers described parenthood as you know, a lifetime of cognitive and social demands. So like a kind of enrichment. And that is very different than how we typically yes. talk about it. And I love thinking of it that way. Yes, yes. And I will quickly add the note that, of course, we're not saying you have to have children. No, nope, There are absolutely. certainly other ways to seek enrichment in your life. Yes, for sure. And enjoy all the sleep that you get by being child-free. Yep. <laughs> but that is a really interesting reframing because, yeah, the narrative is parenting ages you so fast. Parenting is all yes. gray hairs, yes. which is both an ageist way of looking at it and yep. really reductive. Yeah. I also want to circle back to what you just mentioned about using this science for better policies because yeah. you and I were talking before we started recording and you were saying how there's also a lot of opportunity here to serve reproductive justice. So if you want to speak to that a little bit. I think there's sort of two pieces to this. One, there's been a lot that's written and been said in the past, you know, couple of months about what does it mean to carry a child and what are like the real risks and long-term effects of that and how, you know, the law doesn't account for them at all to the birthing parent's life. And I think this brain science just adds evidence to the case Mm -hmm. that's already clear. But reproductive justice, I think, as it's been defined by the Black women and trans people who have really led that movement, is about access to reproductive health that we typically think of, abortion and contraceptives. But it's also about being able to thrive in parenthood if you choose it, to have access to both the perinatal care you need and and the resources to parent well. And many, many people lack those things now. And I mean, the perinatal care in particular, we need so much on that front. And I think the parental brain science can be used to improve it. You know, we don't routinely screen expectant parents for risk factors for postpartum mood and anxiety disorders, even though we know some of them and we know that referring people to therapy can help. I mean, there's so many pieces of this to talk about in terms of post-childbirth, you know, mortality and morbidity, but also like the absolute absence of postpartum care in the United States is really awful and like glaringly in need of correction. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) we have, you know, one six-week postpartum appointment. That's the standard. But yet we know that many people experience, you know, crises of mental health long before that. And there's research that indicates that a significant percentage of people screen negative at that six-week appointment, but then go on to develop postpartum depression. There are so many layers here where we can do a better job. And I think this science can help. 
I mean, we really couldn't be doing a worse job. So pretty much any opportunity to improve. Yes. (laughs) Paid leave, more affordable childcare. I mean, it's a very long list, but I'm really excited for your book to be out there and helping to bolster the fight. And I'm just curious to know on a personal level, you talked a little bit about what inspired you to write the book because of landing in that postpartum period and having that experience. How has doing the book, especially you've been working on the book during a pandemic with young children, how has this changed and informed your own parenting? It helps me to cut myself some slack, primarily. (laughs) It's something that I really struggle with a lot, but it's definitely helped me to shed some of the societal expectations around how I should feel as a mother and how mothering my particular kids should feel. All of that, the whole section of the book, dissecting parenting advice, I wrote a lot of that during the height of the pandemic (laughs) when it just, you know, things felt so impossible and messy. And was pretty grueling to go through all of that and to grapple with my own internalized messaging around mm-hmm. <laughs> around motherhood. But ultimately, like I arrived back at this like basic point that I think the science makes, which is just about connection and that I can like look at my kids and figure out what they need and that I will make some mistakes and that those are prediction errors that will like help me to do better next time. And all of that can sort of like sound trite, except it's like real. Yeah. (laughs) Like at a brain level, we're growing and getting better at this all the time. I mean, and it's a message we try to teach our kids, right? That making mistakes is part of learning. And I think I've said to my kids, like, this is how your brain grows. So why are we not giving ourselves the same? I'm definitely going to use that the next time I screw up, which will surely be later today. It's like, well, my brain is growing. (laughs) I am becoming a better parent through this experience. Yeah, it's true. So we wrap up every episode of the podcast with my recommendation segment, Butter for Your Burnt Toast. I would love to know what you'd like to recommend for us? My kids are finally at the stage where they're both into chapter books and I couldn't be more excited about it. I like pretty much wanted to have kids just so that I could read to them. And that was really fun, like in these first few years. But then like, you know, how many times can you read like Grumpy Ladybug? So I'm excited to be in this new stage. And we just read The Wild Robot and The Wild Robot Escapes. Yes. I just love them so much. And we live in Maine and the author's from Maine. And so it feels like the island that The Wild Robot ends up on is from Maine. So we've been like going out and pretending that we're the wild robot and on the coast of Maine. That is so fun. Yes. My older daughter read those recently. I should see... My younger one is about to turn five, so she's probably ready for that as a read aloud soon. Yeah, that's a great really suggestion. Fun. We've been reading a lot of Dory Fantasmagory. That's kind of... Oh, that's one of our all-time favorites. Yeah. My, get my younger Dory. daughter really is Dory, and my older daughter is yes. named Violet. So Beatrix oh. really connects with Dory and having a bossy oh. older sister named Violet. I love it's that. a real emotional journey she's on with that. So it's been really fun. <laughs> I feel like the first time I saw my kids, like, laugh at a book to the point of like uncontrollable laughter it was with those yeah. like it's just they're just so they're good. so good I wish she would write more Beatrix will like quote lines like we'll be somewhere else and she'll like 
quote a Dory line because it's just banana like, phone. Yeah, banana phone. <laughs> yeah, so many things. I could have a whole Dory appreciation episode. Yeah. So. Well, let me know. <laughs> yeah. So my butter is kind of a slightly random one, but you and I were also talking about you were interested in meadows and you're like yes. making a meadow in your garden. So yes. I was like, oh, I'll do my butter about how much I love my meadows. Yeah. So for folks who don't follow my gardening content on Instagram, by which I mean stuff I put in my stories, I'm not a gardening influencer. You kind of are, though. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> an accidental gardening influencer. Yeah. You know, we live on a, like a small mountain in the Hudson Valley. So our yard is like all sloping. Like we have no flat backyard. So having a big sloping area of lawn made no sense to us because it was well, we also don't play sports. So we have turned it over to a wildflower and wild grasses meadow. And I love it so much. It is, I mean, it's a big, we're fortunate we have like this big area we could do. You could do a smaller scale version. Absolutely. But especially this time of year, the pollinators are like out in full force. Mm. And every morning I'm out there just like getting very excited about but this morning I was like watching a monarch and I was like the monarchs I'm so worried about them and I have them here (laughs) we're at monarch sanctuary so yeah so what are you thinking about doing tell me yeah there's a part of our yard that the woods are kind of taking it over again but it's in this it's just in messy and Mm -hmm. I really love I don't want more lawn I know that for sure yeah yeah I love the idea of kind of like deliberately creating something where the point is to not maintain it Mm -hmm. or like minimal maintenance. And yeah, the pollinator piece is huge. One thing that I'm not sure is like, how do you keep it from becoming woods again? I guess that's just the mow. Yeah, usually once a year you mow it and that keeps the woody shrubs and trees from getting too much of a foothold. Uh, And you time your mowing usually like, late spring like you leave it up over the winter if you can handle how messy it looks that's is a controversial topic but we can handle it and I actually think it's sort of beautiful the dead seed heads and grasses like can look really beautiful snow it did mean we lost our sledding hill so it was controversial locally in my house but it is what it is and yeah so you leave it up over the winter because it creates a lot of habitat for hibernating animals and bugs and all that and then once spring hits and things have kind of warmed up and critters have woken up and are out of their burrows and leaves or whatever then you mow it for the season and let it grow up fresh is how most people do it so yeah so you don't really have too much of a problem with woody plants if you stick to that the bigger issue is sorting out if you have invasive weeds and of course that's a subjective concept I just wrote a whole piece about the native purist stuff that can get a little out of control. But we did have a situation where like 95% of the meadow was this plant called mugwort, which doesn't Mm. have a lot of wildlife value. And just in becoming a monoculture was not as pretty as I wanted it to be. It doesn't have a nice flower. And it was just like preventing us from planting other things. So we did ultimately spray. We tried mm. hand pulling, but it was such a big infestation. That would have been like years of our life. Mm. And so we did spray and felt like this one-time use of chemicals for the greater... Long-term benefit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that completely worked because this year the meadows looked really great. And so mm. we, yeah, we sprayed last summer, all the invasives, let them die down. And then in actually in... So this getting the meadow going we did a little differently we mowed in november so that it was like kind of just scorched earth at that point and then we did a big wildflower seed mix that we spread out in december 
Um, and so, because a lot of them need like a cold yeah. period. Cold, yeah. And so we did like a big heavy seeding in December. And then this year, it's mostly been grasses coming up because the grasses mm-hmm. kind of wake up first. But some wildflowers are definitely, we've had a lot of milkweed and, you know, there's some that come up right away. But then next year, the, there's some wildflowers that sort of like start by pushing down their roots. And then hopefully next year we'll get more flowers in there. So it's a, it is a long process and it's surprisingly complex. But yeah, those are the basic things like figuring out what you have. If you need to eradicate invasives, doing that yeah. and then doing yeah. a seeding, yeah. um, you can also just like let it grow and see what yeah. comes up. You may yeah. be better off than I was. I think we'll be somewhere in between. We have a little bit of invasives, but it's a smaller space, I think, than what you have. So I think we'll be able to manage some of that. But yeah, I love it. Yours is beautiful. We also have turkeys in our backyard often, and it just feels like it could be a good like wildlife space too. Yeah, just, definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Well. Yeah. Keep me posted. I want to hear how it goes. Yes. I'm available for Meadow. Okay, good. Consultation. Thank you. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Chelsea, thank you so much for being here. We want everyone to go get a copy of Mother Brain, which is out this week or the week that this airs. Where can folks find you and support your work? Yeah, well, they can buy the book at their local bookstore and they can read more about it at motherbrainbook.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player. Tell a friend about this episode and consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. You can do that at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com or check this episode description for the link. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Tana Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.